a wonderful hymn about the blessings of having God's word as a place to stand, uh, uh, God's word to be believed. Let's open God's word and hear from him. As we turn to our text for our sermon this morning, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as the program indicates, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15, as you're turning. Uh, let's welcome those who may be watching the live stream or later on watching our recording that we put on the internet. We invite you to join with us. We have lots of places here among us and we sing hymns and pray and praise the Lord together. So we invite you to come and be with us as well as listen to God's word. As we continue uh, in this study, we're picking up in verse 11 through verse 15. This is the word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. We often think of John Newton as simply the author of Amazing Grace. John Newton, born in 1725, back in the colonial era, I guess we would put it, and he lived until 1807. Interesting times in the history of our world. John Newton was so much more than just the writer of that hymn. He had grown up, if you remember his story, and went off to sea to find a profession in life as a sailor. And he was a sailor on a ship that would trade in slaves. And so he became part of the slave industry. And in an interesting uh, turn of events for a season... He himself, in the continent of Africa, was enslaved, an indentured slave chained to a stake in the front yard of a wealthy woman, John Newton. And I mention some of those details because I hope if you've never read a biography of John Newton, you need to read one. We have two or three versions in our church library. I encourage you to look it up. Brian Edwards' little paperback will get you started, if nothing else. Study how God worked in this man to turn him around. This former slave trader would become converted. He'd become a, a, a vibrant Christian, remembering the things his mother had tried to teach him. He was not only a Christian, but he would become a pastor and a preacher from a pulpit in the greater London area. And he would be an abolitionist and a friend and significant influence to William Wilberforce. And how thankful that he would see England abolish slavery 
just months before he died. But can you picture this bulk of a man, and, and maybe you can think of the, the 2006 movie Amazing Grace. Albert Finney, that great actor, plays Newton. I think he does a fine job for the most part in that movie. And this hulking figure, this sizable man, who now puts on a preaching robe and stands in a pulpit and pleads with people, uh, must have been a sight to see or a, to hear. Newton himself preached on the text that we're talking about today. In fact, he was 75 years old. And he said, as he preached that particular Sunday, he said, you know, every trip to the pulpit, I think, could be my last. As preachers age, many of us think that way. But this well-worn man was already 75, long beyond the age expectancy for the early 1800s. He thought it might be the last trip into the pulpit. And when he looked out on the congregation, he saw souls for whom he would have to give an account when he did die and stand before the Lord. And he saw those souls as those who themselves must give an account to the Lord. And so he writes about this. And when he sees the passion of Paul here in the text before us, he pleads in that sermon and says this, John Newton, Surely if I believe what the scripture teaches of the evil of sin, he knew it well, the glory of the Savior, he knew amazing grace, the worth of the soul, and the importance of eternity, you will allow me to speak with the same degree of emotion as the Apostle Paul. And with many words, John Newton preached to the people in that chapel he would live to be 82. And many marked their conversion to that era. Evangelical Christians uh, then and now are known for being passionate about the gospel. That's, that's part of our history. That's part of what the, the moniker is supposed to mean. And how grieved I am, and I hope you are, that it has become tainted as, as a political label, as though we are a voting block, and that's our purpose for being an evangelical. Evangelical means those who love the gospel, those who love the word of God, those who know that sinners are perishing and they need to hear the good news. And so we preach, whether we're an Anglican or a Methodist or a Baptist or a Congregationalist or a Presbyterian. If you love the gospel, the gospel makes you tick. And the gospel makes you go and speak. I hope this passage this morning will remind us of our marching orders. It's one thing to stand on the promises of God, but it's another thing to obey the Great Commission and go with the promise of God and hold it forth to others. And so in this message today, how I see the text and want to present it to you starts with this assumption, Christian, and then a command. I think that's what the text would have us hear. First, Christian, witness in the fear of the Lord. That's where it starts. Or secondly, it says, Christian, passionately serve God and man. 
and not the other way around. And finally, Christian, be controlled by the love of Christ. These were the things that were real in the life of the Apostle Paul. And he doesn't just say, oh, I'm a model here. He really sets these things before us as theological imperatives. He shares his thinking and prays that we will share it too. If we have the same theological convictions. The first heading looks at verse 11. Verse 11, as Paul begins this this last section of the chapter, he's talking about the ministry of reconciliation. He's describing what he does. And he begins with why he does it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Therefore, it connects with what's gone before, and we've been doing that each week, looking at different segments of the the scriptures. The therefore tells us, what? That something just spoken is influencing his present behavior. Well, what comes before verse 11, but verse 10? In this case, it's really easy to find uh, the precursor. Verse 10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a judgment coming. And because there's a judgment coming, and Paul shared that reality, he now begins to describe his ministry, how he lives his Christian life, using the connective, therefore, I persuade others. And he does. The therefore isn't alone. He doesn't just say, therefore, I persuade others. He, he, he details here. He says, I know that judgment is coming. And I know what it is to rightly fear the Lord. I think it's important to, to understand that for the Apostle Paul, the word to know, very common word in Greek, is used in his letters over a hundred times. And in 2 Corinthians... It's used 16 times. He talks about knowing. Why does he do that? Because his gospel isn't just a scare tactic. And his life isn't just a gut feeling. Paul says, what I know to be true affects how I live my life. And if you're a teenager, that may sound strange to you because you're growing up in a world that's driven by feelings. We are a sensual culture that our senses and our feelings tend to rule our lives. We eat when we're hungry. We sleep when we want to. We binge watch Netflix, even though we know we shouldn't because we we can't wait. We have no patience. We want to see what happens to our characters. But the Christian life is built on truth and the revelation of God, who he is and what he has said. And Paul constantly seasons his letters. The word of God constantly talks about what we know. By the way, that's why Christians are called disciples. We're learning what God has said. We want to know who God is and what he has said. So Paul says here, uh, this word to know, and in in this letter alone, it means uh, knowing certain basic facts. Or if we drop down to verse 16, Paul will use that sense uh, uh, in the translation. Uh, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
regard, meaning no. We know people are more than just bodies. What he knows affects what he's going to do. When he meets that new person, or if he was driving his chariot and the driver in front was going too slow and he wanted to honk his horn, he says, oh wait, that's not just a body, that is a soul that will live for eternity. Our knowledge of spiritual realities affects what we do and how we treat people. The Bible's famous for saying, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That doesn't mean uh, to, free to sit on a couch and become a couch potato. It means free to serve the Lord, free to do what the Lord calls us to do. I want to point out that uh, when he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, as he looks back to this pending judgment, it's not simply that the lost are going to be judged. We do well to remember that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you're a believer, you will not be judged for, uh, to be lost. You will have an advocate, but you will give an account of your life. The deeds done in serving Christ. It'll be a judgment uh, to determine your rewards, as some have put it but it's mutual. So Paul was aware of that coming judgment. A couple decades ago, someone wrote in a popular Christian magazine this description of Paul, pretty powerful. Paul was awed by the thought of standing before a being so holy, so morally superior, so removed from evil, That in his presence, all human boasting, all human pride, and all human arrogance would vanish as he stands in a speechless humility before the one beyond understanding. And and then with trembling lips, gives a full account of himself. That day will come. That day will come. So Paul begins by saying, knowing that this judgment's coming and knowing the fear of the Lord. Let me just pause and comment on that phrase. You know, I I can't pass over. Uh, I did my uh, doctor of ministry degree and the thesis on Jesus and the doctrine of the fear of God. It's important to understand its relationship with our faith. And we need to be rightly fearing the Lord if, if this is going to be a picture of us. It is right to fear the Lord. You see, there are two types of fear. One is a servile fear. You know the word servant? Servant fear, dread of your master. Oh, I don't want to get whipped. I'm going to stay away from doing... That's the fear of the world. A servile fear. A Christian who is now a child of God has a filial fear. Filial is the old-fashioned word for being a child of someone. He has the fear, the believer has the fear of a child of God, which means an awe and respect as for a parent. There are two types of fear. And and a lot of people think, oh, once I'm saved, I don't have to have any fear of God. Well, he is still God. He is holy. He is Lord. And you're not. So we need to have a fear. And as I wrote in my thesis, the way people fear God flows from their view of God and their relationship with him. 
I even printed out a page uh, from my thesis so I could remember the quote. And as I'm looking at that, I found a typo in my published thesis. It never ends. This fear of God, John Murray says, it refers to the conception we entertain of God and the attitude of heart and mind that is ours by reason of that conception. You see, unbelievers see God in his holiness and his justice, and they're like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes fear. The believer sees God and yet pursues God. Where else shall we go? You alone have the words of life. I respect who you are, and I have faith in what you've said, and so I cast myself into your fatherly care. Proper fear of the Lord is an expression of faith in the Lord and your relationship with the Lord. The fear of God, the Father, by Christians, his spiritual children, is a filial fear, the fear of a son. As Derek Prime says, to fear God is to reverence him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and aim to please him above other goals and and including being committed to the spread of the good news. That's why Paul says here, knowing the fear of the Lord, I know judgment's coming, we persuade others. He moves forward. As one commentator said, rather than debilitating, such reverence reverberates through an appropriate faith, ultimately manifesting a trust in God as one reflects on the awesome dimensions of his power. Not only a trust in God, but an obedience to God. And what does Paul want to do with this fear of the Lord? I persuade others. I persuade others, knowing that they have to give an account and that I have to give an account. So I'm going to start speaking some truth. It's easy to not care. Um, There's a lot of opinions out there on social media, right? And sometimes you see an opinion... And you go, wow, that's, that's, that's not right. But you see other Christians chiming in and, and cheering. Oh, that's not right. Well, if I comment or say anything, there's a backlash. I'm just going to scroll by. I think that's a fear of men. If we see something, we should say something. And, and yes, there's, there's, there's often pushback. But if we fear God and we know that we give an account to God, why don't we say something now? Oh, well, we're afraid of what others will think. and They might not like us or they might give us a thumbs down or whatever the icons are. My friends, it's never wrong to stand in the right to stand with God. And when you're not positive what that place is, at least be tentative and, and, and speak words of caution to those who are reckless. And especially caution to those who are not right with God. We persuade others. I think Paul primarily is thinking evangelism. That seems to be the context, and that's where the chapter is going. But it also includes speaking the truth to those Corinthians to whom he is writing. 
I really hope to keep you Corinthians from believing the false teachers and making shipwreck of faith. I'm trying to persuade you and I'm trying to remind you that the gospel makes these differences. I'm persuading. His fear of the Lord gives backbone to his evangelism. And this word persuasion. Some of you have read 1 Corinthians, right? We don't have time to recap 1 Corinthians this morning. Do you remember one of the things Paul says early on in 1 Corinthians about his ministry? He says, we're not using all those rhetorical gimmicks you're used to. Just a plain statement, I want to preach Christ and him crucified. I know you're into fancy Greek and Roman uh, rhetorical contests and speakers with the gift of eloquence were ubiquitous in the fashionable city of Corinth. Paul says, I'm not going to stoop to all those rhetorical gimmicks. And yet here he says he's out to persuade people. There's no conflict there. Paul does renounce the gimmicks, but he sees the power of persuasion and the necessity of persuasion. If you're a note taker, I'll give you the scriptures to look at in Acts. Uh, Several passages where this same word persuade is used. We'll look at a couple. Acts 17, there's a mob, and Paul's trying to persuade them there. Acts 18, verse 4, Paul is at Corinth, and he's trying to persuade them. Acts 19, verse 8, and verse 26 talk about Paul's ministry of persuasion. For instance, Acts 19, 26, it's actually the voice of Demetrius, the local guy who's afraid of Paul. Demetrius says, And you you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Wow. He's done it persuasively. He's seen people turn from idolatry to the one true and living God. What do they say about us? Are we persuasive or are we totally passive? Saved by grace, freely, freely we have received, and freely, freely we sit home. Paul persuaded others. That was an example from Acts 19. There's other examples that this characterized Paul's ministry in Acts 26 and Acts 28. Acts 26, Paul's talked to Festus, and he also goes on to talk to King Agrippa. Acts 26, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I had a friend when I was doing ministry in Rockland, Massachusetts, early on, this was in the 90s, he had a church and an opportunity to fill the pulpit on Martha's Vineyard. And President Bill Clinton was known to vacation on Martha's Vineyard. And my friend said, I have written a sermon for the president that if he should wander into our little Baptist chapel on Martha's Vineyard, I'll pull that out of my pocket and that's the word for him. And I go, wow, what would I do? And it got me thinking. There's a boldness and he was an older brother in Christ, a more established pastor. Christians were called to be salt and light, we're called to be the watchman on the wall. If the watchman on the wall sees trouble and doesn't say anything, he's guilty. I'm not trying to pick on a former president. I'm trying to show the boldness and the desire to be persuasive. 
that time and effort and preparation went into that work then. Even as Paul speaks to King Agrippa, he says, do you believe the prophets? And what did Agrippa say? Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He knows what Paul's doing. He sees it. And Paul's doing it. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Persuasion. Paul was persuaded. I love the story in the Gospel of John about Jesus and the man born blind. He was being grilled about his theology. And what do you know about Jesus? And what's your opinion on this? He says, hey, I don't know all the answers, but I know this. I was blind, but now I see. And it's because of Jesus. Persuasion doesn't have to be at the level of a corporate or or a, 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 a nationwide syndicated columnist. Persuasion is looking at those that God puts in your path and saying, I know this is hard to hear, but it's true. It's in the Bible. It's what I believe. It's what God has said. Do we persuade others of the good news? That's verse 11. The text has a few more verses. Let's press on. Verses 12 and 13 are a little challenging in this context, but I hope to put them in a little clarity here. I think they're telling us, Christian, passionately serve God and men, as being those who would uh, serve men before God. The text in verses 12 and 13 says this, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. Paul's anticipating the pushback from those false teachers in Corinth. He is not out here just to be defensive and commend himself. It kind of sounds like he's being defensive, doesn't it? We're not commending ourselves. He's not. Rather, he's going to explain to them a little bit more about his motivation. He fears God and he serves God. I don't just serve men. You see, people in Corinth were focused on the wrong things. There's an irony here as well. Do you see it? Well, if you know Greek, you would see it. But it's here in verse 12. We are we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer, and listen to the description, those who boast about outward appearance. Do you think the Bible's big on boasting about outward appearance? In fact, the word there is literally just faces. Putting on your face. There are websites that try to catch celebrities without their makeup on. Heaven forbid. And there are others that know from the Greek and Roman theater that uh, a lot of uh, uh, performances were done with a mask on. Or the pretense. You would change your face for your audience. So when Paul talks about those who uh, only strive to be pleasing face to face. And not worry about the heart. He says those people are focusing on the wrong things. And you should be able to see that. 
We know, we've studied uh, 1 Samuel, haven't we? The early decision to call David as king and Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 17 goes to the house of Jesse and Jesse's got a lot of boys, some of them big strapping men. And he goes through all of them and the Lord says, none of these is to be anointed king. And Samuel says, well, who else? Well, there's the shepherd boy. He's just a teenager. Call him in here. And he wasn't as impressive as some of his brothers. And the Lord reminded Samuel on that occasion, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. So here Paul is consistent with the scriptures, is he not? You can be caught up in those who are fancy and successful and have a beautiful facade, or you can look at the content of their ministry, the content of their character. Don't focus on flashy styles. Don't focus on the wrong things. And verse 13, I would say, tells us to don't mind those who misunderstand us. Verse 13, Paul says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Can you imagine, uh, and perhaps these verses point that way, was Paul having to defend himself against the charge of madness? The people in Corinth had picked on him pretty plainly that he would vacillate and change his travel plans. We remember that from the earlier chapters. He had to constantly defend them. I go where God wants me to go. But they're kind of intimating. You know, that Apostle Paul, he's, he's kind of off his rocker. He's, he goes too far. He's, he, he's a fanatical. He's lost his marbles. I don't even know what they said back in ancient Greece. We do know one of the earliest commentators on Scripture, John Chrysostom, the golden-mouthed preacher of the early church, he said at this point, even if people think he is mad, everything he does is for the glory of God. So people wondered what was being said about Paul, and Paul's just kind of owning it here. He says, I don't mind if you misunderstand me. If we are beside ourselves, if, if I'm out of my mind, it's for God. If you don't understand my behavior, if you don't understand my motivations, if you don't think judgment is coming and you think I'm crazy, that's the way it is. And if I'm in my right mind, know that I'm doing things for your benefit as well. Derek Prime says, widely observable truth, in a world that does not take seriously God's holiness and righteousness, any proclamation of divine judgment will be regarded by some as madness. The gospel is then viewed as irrelevant or utter foolishness. Enthusiasm for the gospel will often be thought madness by the world. You know, it seems the only place I see people with a sandwich board with the words, uh, 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 the end is near, uh, turn to God, you know, those kinds of things, you only see those in the cartoons because the world thinks it's funny. The message we're talking about from the Bible, from verse 10, judgment is coming, verse 11, fear the Lord, persuade others, people think it's odd and funny. 
You walk out of church, you have your Bible under your arm, people see you. Most of those goofy people, they believe in, in the flood and the ark of Noah. They believe in Jesus of Nazareth and risen from the dead and that he's coming again and that God's going to judge us. They believe in hell? <laughs> yes. Don't mind being misunderstood. And Paul's passion for the truth was part of this being misunderstood. You know, people won't misunderstand you if you're so quiet and meek. You don't say anything. You don't believe anything publicly. You fly under the radar. Shame on you. Verse 13 does go on to mention um, that he does it for them. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. He does offer sane and selfless service. He doesn't say, I don't care what you think. He says, I do care what you think. He's writing them another letter. He wants Christians to understand. He wants those who are watching to understand what makes him tick and why he does what he does. He gives an account of this ministry. What did he say in the previous chapter? You you can turn a page. 2 Corinthians 4, this is what Paul had said, beginning in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, and he quotes the Old Testament, I believed and so I spoke. He goes on to say, we also believe. And so we also speak, knowing, chapter 4, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, overtures of judgment there, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul's consistent. From chapter to chapter, I do what I do for you. I'm serving you even as I serve God. Well, let's move on to this wonderful third heading from our text this morning. Verses 14 and 15. And perhaps that's where you've underlined in your Bible. The Apostle Paul here will give us such a clear explanation of the death of Christ. And its significance. There is gospel here. There is good news here. And it begins with a statement about love. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christian, be controlled by the love of Christ. This is the second major motive that Paul talks about. His first motive in verse 11 was, I I understand judgment's coming. I understand the fear of the Lord, and so I'm doing what I'm doing. But in addition to fear, he has this second major motive of love. And the two go together. Let me comment on that. Fear and love are not opposites. They're they're not incongruous, but they can work together. Paul Barnett said it very clearly, reminding us that in the Bible, fear is not cringing terror, but holy reverence. And, he says, love is not romantic feelings, but sacrificial care. 
when we have biblical understandings of fear and love, they, they, go, they walk together. They jointly motivate Paul. Now he says, the love of Christ controls us. There's another word, of, it's in the genitive. There's a possessive here. Uh, who's, is it talking about Paul's love for Christ or Christ's love for Paul? You know how it could go either way. Sorry to pull grammar on you early on a Sunday morning. The love of Christ. The love that Christ has for me or the love that I have for Christ. Oh, I could speak of the love of my wife. My love for her or her love for me. You see? The context here seems to indicate that he's speaking of Christ's love for Paul. The love of Christ. And we see John 3.16 worked out in the background, don't we? For God so loved the world, what? That he sent his only begotten son. And the son was sent to die. And here Paul's talking about uh, the love of Christ controls us. And he talks about the death of Christ. So Paul is talking about the love that Christ has for him and for us. Your love. Your love for Christ, that comes and goes, that ebbs and tides. There are days where you have not paused to worship Christ. Your love can be cold and dormant. That's the reality. I know that because I know my own heart. I'm always under conviction when I read somebody, someone's obituary, or I hear a testimony of a man, he said to his wife every day he loved her, or a man who every Day gave her a flower. Oh, oh, I wish I could love more consistently. But thank God what compels Paul is not the strength of his love, but the love of Christ. How rich and free. How measureless and strong. The love of God to us in Christ Jesus. Here Paul is really speaking of the gospel and the cross, John 3.16. He's also speaking of Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 and verse 8. Romans 5 is one of those chapters we need to know well. Perhaps that's your reading for this Sunday afternoon. Paul is speaking about the gospel. Not that Christ loved us with a romantic love, but he loved us with a sacrificial giving love. And and Paul says that controlled him. The love of Christ controls us. It compels him. It motivates him. He's no longer living for himself. Let me comment on what we see here. These words, died for all, all died, he died for all. It's repeated a couple of times here. And and this is kind of a PS in the sermon structure, a postscript, but it has to come right here. PS, this is not teaching universalism. Universalism is that aberrant Christian doctrine. It's a Christian heresy That everyone in the world is saved. Everyone in the world is going to heaven because of what Christ has done. Unitarian Universalists promote this still. A lot of liberal theologians, they they don't believe in hell because Christ has come. Everyone's going to heaven. Everyone's forgiven. 
universalism is not taught here. But rather what Paul is doing as he writes to Christians, as a Christian, as he writes to those in Corinth and in Clifton Park, trying to clarify why we serve God so well, he says Christ has died for all of us, all believers, all his people, past, present, and future. If someone's converted tomorrow, Christ died for them. A countless host. Christ died. He's the only one who could take our place on the cross. And in dying for us, we have died to the judgment of God. We have died to self-serving, sinful impulses. We are changed. Romans 5 and Romans 6 go on to speak about those changes. If we have been buried with Christ in a death like his, we will be raised with Christ. And that's what baptism does in its demonstrating uh, ordinance in the church. We, we speak of a new Christian as dying to his old self and living to Christ. So Paul here is referencing those things. He is not teaching a universalism. And if you need to have the argument right from the text, right here in chapter 5, you can see that he's definitely not talking about universalism. Back in verse 7, he talks about us, those who have the Holy Spirit, are Christians. In verse 11, he says, I aim to persuade others. Well, why do you need to persuade them if they're not in any danger, Paul? Chapter 5 and verse 17, we'll get to that next week, Lord willing. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's not universalism. There's work to be done. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. He implores others be reconciled to God. Because if they're not reconciled to God, they are lost. And they will face the judgment of God. So Paul's not teaching universalism. That's the footnote. But he does say the love of Christ compels him. And he concludes with this phrase in verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's the climax. Fear motivates him. Love motivates him. And he's reminded that this gospel work in him doesn't end with him. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. He died for all, therefore all have died. There's a certain take up your cross and follow Christ when you're a Christian, right? It means self-denial. I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living for others. And I'm living clearly driven by truth so that even if others think I'm off kilter, I'm still going to tell them the truth. Self-denying, selfless living and serving one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's in the Navigator's Memory Pack, which I first started back in 1980. What year was it? I forgot what year it was. The Navigator's Pack, Galatians 2.20, I don't know. I'm just curious. How many people could say Galatians 2.20 by memory, or at least paraphrase it? Oh, we have our work cut out for us. Paul's testimony is, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. That's a strange statement. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here it comes. Who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Galatians 2.20. Paul was writing to those Galatians. They're caught up in other gospels. They're caught up into, with the Judaizers. You have to add things to Christ. And Paul says, no! Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I am alive as a Christian and I live and walk by faith because of the death of Christ and the death of me in Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20. The esteemed pastor Kent Hughes, uh, often sought out by pastors for his counsel, his sermons are read as models of exposition. He wisely reminds us of our need for self-denial, to no longer live for ourselves. That is a very serious demand. He says, a thousand things that work to draw us into ourselves are attached, parasite-like to our possessions and our passions and our appetites, all freighted with implosion, all laden with the potential to make us very small and useless. A thousand things are at work. We're salted, we're swimming in the muck of this world, and and we could so easily live for self. This is no mere platitude. This is what motivated Paul. He says, I'm no longer my own, but I live for him. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Because of this, there's no room for cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught us. It's interesting, I was listening to some cello music by Yo-Yo Ma as I was working on the sermon last night. Cello music, easy to work on sermon. And would you know it, it's just on shuffle. All of a sudden, he starts playing the tune Simple Gifts, that old shaker tune. Da-da-da-da, gift to be simple. I didn't really think of the words. And all of a sudden there's a vocalist on top of Yo-Yo Ma. So I'm reaching to shut it off. So I'm not distracted. But the words were interesting. As I was writing about not living for self. Exact same moment. The words, and you can hit the phone and it tells you the lyrics so you can hear them. Tis a gift to be simple. Tis a gift to be free. Tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. Talking about humility, I think. Those shakers, pretty simple. And it got to the refrain. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. When true simplicity is gained, when I realize what Christ has done for me, and I'm humbled And selfless, when I have to bow and bend in the service of others, I will not be ashamed. I thought that hit it pretty square at the bullseye. My friends, if Christ has died for you, you must no longer live for yourself. That's what Paul writes here. Let me recap by way of closing these these three major thrusts. First, fear the Lord and fear the fate of the lost. Be aware that judgment is coming. Be constrained. And if the world thinks you're crazy, secondly, do not fear the misunderstandings of the world. I don't think we could ever please the world. 
So why try? But rather do what will be in their best interest. And thirdly, serve the Lord from the heart with joy and passion. A song that we all sang a few minutes ago as part of our worship, Freely, Freely. God forgave my sin in Jesus' name. I've been born again in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name, I come to you to share his love as he told me to. And the chorus puts these words in the mouth of Jesus. He said, freely, freely you have received. Freely, freely give. Go in my name and because you believe, others will know that I live. I think that's what Paul is saying. We know the fear of the Lord. We know the forgiveness of the Lord. And we selflessly serve the Lord and tell others the truth. May God help us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for opening it to our understanding. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that in understanding we might believe your word and that we might obey it. That we might be conscious of these truths and these truths might shape our days and our nights, our ways and our words. Father, give us strength for the living of these days. May we not be offensive but winsome, having been treated with grace In forgiveness, may we be patient with others. But having been changed by the truth, may we share the truth with others. Oh, Father, bless us in all these ways. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.